Well, it's great to be back here with you again, and I appreciate you all coming back out tonight. I know everybody has uh, busy schedules and a lot of things to do, so I really do appreciate you taking time uh, to come out tonight. And uh, Pastor was right. I mean, when we talk about, think about Bible prophecy, I always like to say, you know, that God has given us prophecy not to scare us, but to prepare us. I think that's a very important thing because a lot of people, when you talk about prophecy, they do get scared. And, you know, sometimes people should be scared if they don't know the Lord, but even sometimes believers do, though. Um, sometimes, you know, especially younger Christians, maybe, or folks that, um, you know, are just kind of unsure. Some people are just a little bit more tender in their conscience and in their understanding of things. And sometimes it can scare them. So now my, my uh, responsibility or my task is uh, to use these things, I pray, though, to uh, encourage our hearts. Uh, tonight, we want to talk about a, a fascinating topic. A lot of people don't talk about it often, but it's a topic that covers a lot of scripture, and that's the topic of the millennial kingdom, the millennial reign of Christ. Let's go over to Revelation 20. Uh, there are a lot of passages in the Bible, as we're going to see tonight, that talk about the millennium, but I want to read these verses. This is kind of the classic text on the millennium, uh, Revelation 20, 1 through 6, and uh, we'll look at a lot of other places as well. Revelation chapter 20, 1 through 6, I'll read this for us. And again, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm reading from the New American Standard. So if you have the NIV, I know as most of you do, it'll be a little different. It says, I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he should not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God, and those who did not worship the beast or his image and did not receive the mark upon their forehead and upon their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years." The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. And then that's kind of, that's kind of parenthetical, the beginning of verse 5 there. And then it says, this is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him uh, for a thousand years. Now, did you all know, I hope you do, that there's a day coming when the Garden of Eden or paradise is going to be restored on this earth. It's going to be paradise regained or paradise restored according to the Bible. And uh, can you imagine what the Garden of Eden must have been like? Um, I heard a story about uh, Cain and Abel. They found a, a wall one day after they'd been put out of the garden. And uh, they climbed over it and they looked down into it. And they went back, back to their dad, to Adam. And they said, uh, Dad, you'll never believe what we saw. And they described all the luxurious foliage and the fruit and the flowers and all the things they saw. And they said, Dad, do you think we could ever live in a place like that? And Adam said, well, we did once, but that was before your mother ate us out of house and home. <laughs> now, of course, that's not true. It's only just a story. And uh, we certainly can't blame Eve any more than we can blame Adam. But there is coming a time when we are going to live in a place like that, according to the Bible. A man's dream, the, the kind of age-long dream of a, a great utopia on earth is someday going to be uh, realized according to Scripture. And that time is known as uh, the millennium, or sometimes it's called the messianic age or the messianic kingdom. Now, most Christians, I think, would be surprised to find out how much there is in the Bible about the millennium. The Old Testament prophets, if you read the Old Testament uh, through sometime, are filled with lengthy sections that describe this coming age on the earth. Uh, Dr. Dwight Pentecost, uh, anybody here ever heard of Dwight Pentecost's book, Things to Come? Dr. Pentecost, I just saw him a couple weeks ago. Um, he turned 97 in April, and he still teaches two classes a week at Dallas Seminary. He's got a little cart now that he drives around the class in, but he's uh, <clears throat> sharp as can be. But in his, his classic book, Things to Come, Dr. Pentecost said this. He said, a larger body of prophetic scripture is devoted to the subject of the millennium, developing its character and conditions than any other one subject. That's fascinating because most people don't really know anything about it. There are hundreds of biblical texts that describe the millennium. 
Now, the main one, or the kind of the climactic one in the New Testament, is the one I read in Revelation 20. But the only thing it really adds is it's the passage that tells us how long it is. Now, the Old Testament describes this period of time, but it never tells us how long it's going to be. Really, the main thing that Revelation 20 adds as the capstone is that it's going to be a period of a thousand years. Now, to help us understand this coming age, I want to answer uh, four questions tonight about the millennium. And as uh, the pastor said earlier, we'll have some questions and answers afterwards. And so if you have any questions about the millennium I don't answer, you can ask those or some other things. You might be thinking about that. But I want to just briefly define what is the millennium. And I want to spend a little bit of time looking at the different views of the millennium. This will help us understand it better. Then what is the millennium going to be like? And why is there going to be a millennium? Why do we need one? So the first thing we need to do is make sure that we know what we're talking about. And we need to define what is uh, the millennium. I heard a story about a little boy. I heard the word uh, millennium at church on uh, one Sunday. And he asked his dad, he says, Dad, what's a millennium? His dad said, don't you know what a millennium is? It's like a centennial, only it's got more legs. <laughs> might take a minute to get that one. But. but I say that because a lot of people are just as confused as that father about the meaning of the millennium. They don't really know what it is. You, you kind of throw that word out there to a lot of people. They don't have any idea what it means. But the meaning is really very simple. The, the Latin word uh, milli means, means 1,000, and the word annum mean year, means years. So millennium is from Latin, and it means literally uh, 1,000 years. Now, I'll just throw this out there. I don't want to confuse this this, uh, this evening, but in the early church, those who believed in a literal 1,000-year reign of Christ were called kiliasts. They weren't called premillennialists as, as we are today. They're called kilias because the Greek word for 1,000 is the Greek word kilias. So if you believed in a literal 1,000-year reign, you were called a kilias. So if you read about in the early church, somebody being a kilias, it means they believe in a literal 1,000-year uh, reign of Christ. So the millennium is the 1,000-year period when Satan is going to be bound and Christ is going to reign. Because you'll notice it says in our text, Satan is bound for a thousand years, and then Christ reigns. So we could call this uh, the time when Satan is chained and the saints reign. That's what I like to call this period of time. Or we could maybe more accurately call it Satan's chain and the Savior's reign is really what this thousand year period is. In Revelation 11:15, it tells us that someday the kingdom of this world is going to become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He will reign forever and ever. It's the time when Christ is going to receive His inheritance from the Father. Remember in Psalm 2:8, it says, "Ask of me, and I will surely give you the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession." That'll be the fulfillment of that period of time. One thing I wanted to mention tonight is, you know, that my favorite chapters in the book of Revelation are Revelation 4 and 5. It's that great scene, you remember in Revelation 4, of the throne room of God. I think the word throne is used uh, 11 or 12 times in, in chapter 4 of Revelation. It's that throne room scene of God where God is seen there pictured upon His throne. And one of the things you'll notice in the book of Revelation as you study it is the book of Revelation alternates between heaven and earth. It starts out uh, on earth and then it goes to heaven in chapters 4 and 5. And then in chapter 6, it comes back to the earth again. And, and uh, chapter 7, uh, chapter 6 and 7, then it goes back at the beginning of chapter 8 to heaven again. And then it comes back to earth and goes back to heaven and back to earth. And those alternating scenes between heaven and earth throughout the book of Revelation are meant to teach us that what's going on on earth is being controlled by heaven. That's one of the great lessons of the book of Revelation. It's not just, because you read Revelation, all the chaos and the destruction that's going on, you get this idea, again, as we said last night, no one's in control. But with it going to heaven, gives you this scene, okay, God's on His throne, everything's coming from there, now let's go back, you know, kind of meanwhile back at the ranch, you know, what's going on down here on the earth? And then you go back to heaven again. But chapters 4 and 5 is that great scene. And you remember in chapter 5 that there's a scroll, or a, a little a, a scroll, a seven-sealed scroll that's in the right hand of the one who sits on the throne. 
And you remember John looks around and nobody is found worthy to open that scroll. But to me, in one of the most beautiful pictures in all the Bible, he turns around and he sees there in the middle of the 24 elders, in the middle of the, the, the angels who are there, it says in the middle of all of it, he says, I saw a lamb standing as if freshly slain. That's a, an oxymoron because you got a lamb that's been freshly slain. It literally means slaughtered, but yet it's standing. And that pictures the death of Jesus, but his resurrection. And the other thing that's beautiful about that is Jesus is right in the center. That this, this lamb that's standing as if slain is right in the middle of everything in heaven. And to me, that's always been powerful in my life because you think about it. If Jesus is at the center of everything in heaven... How much more should he be at the center of everything down here on earth? I mean, if he's the center up there, he certainly should be down here in our lives and our homes, our families and this church and, and any church. And so that's a challenge for us is to, to have the Lord Jesus um, at the center of everything. But he's the one, and you remember, that's found worthy to open this seven sealed scroll. And the only document back in the first century in, in those times that was sealed with seven seals was a will or a, a last will and testament. And so what you have there is inside of this scroll that Jesus begins to open, the lamb begins to open, is the last will or testament if, if you, or the inheritance and so Jesus, you remember, opens the first seal, opens the second seal, the third, all the way to the sixth. Then he opens the seventh seal, and the seventh seal opens up seven trumpets. And then when you get to Revelation 11, I think the seventh trumpet contains the seven bowls of wrath in that are opened. But the book of Revelation is the account, it's, it's the advanced history of how Jesus Christ, by means of judgment, becomes king. Now let me say that again. That's very important. I got this from a guy years ago and it's the best summary of the book of Revelation there is. Got it from a man named S. Lewis Johnson. Uh, he's gone to be with the Lord now. But he said the book of Revelation, it's the advanced history. That's what prophecy is, right? It's, a, it's history in advance. It's the advanced history of how Jesus Christ, by means of judgment, because remember, the, the seal judgments are open, the trumpet judgments are open, the bowl judgments are open. Then after all of that, Jesus comes and the scroll has been completely opened and Jesus comes and takes the inheritance. And that is the culmination of all of human history. That's what all of human history is, is moving towards, is Jesus receiving his inheritance of the kingdoms of this world. That's when the kingdom of this world will become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ, and he'll reign forever. That's when it's going to be fulfilled. Ask of me, and I'll give you the nations as your inheritance. So Christ is going to come to rule and reign. Now, the millennium, this thousand-year reign of Jesus when he returns, I like to call this phase one of God's eternal kingdom. Because see, God's kingdom is forever. God's going to rule forever. But the millennial kingdom, we could say, is phase one of God's eternal kingdom. Or I like to call it the front porch of eternity. But it's, it's phase one of God's eternal kingdom. That's what the millennial kingdom is. And that's what all of history is going towards. Now, with that in mind, I want to look at the different views of the millennium, the different views of the millennium. There are three main views of the nature and the timing of the millennium. I want to mention these because you'll hear people that hold these other views, and I want you to at least know what they are, and hopefully maybe remember a couple reasons why I hold the view that I do. Now, this is very important. If you're a believer in Christ, all Christians agree that Jesus Christ is the King and that Jesus Christ will reign over his kingdom. All Christians, no matter what their view, believe that. Jesus is the king. If you're a Christian, you have to believe that. And he's going to reign over his kingdom. The question is, when will that kingdom appear, and what's the nature of that kingdom? That's what we disagree about. Now, there's three main views of what the millennium is. Now, they're called amillennialism, postmillennialism, and premillennialism. Now, there's a fourth view that's called panmillennialism, and those are the people who believe it's just going to all pan out in the end and don't worry about it. And a lot of people take that view because they think, you know, it's just all too confusing. I'm not going to worry about it. But again, 
with God having told us this much about that kingdom, we ought to try to understand it if we can. And so that's what I want to do. Um, if you'll put those viewed, the, the first one of those up there, I'm not sure which one I had first. Um, I got some charts help us see this a little more clearly. Um, go ahead and put up, yeah, put this one. Okay, amillennialism. Amillennialists uh, believe that Christ is ruling and reigning now in this church age. And what they believe is they don't believe there will be a literal, physical kingdom on the earth. Uh, they think that this kingdom is, is right now. In other words, here's the death of Jesus. Here's the second coming. And this is the church age where we are now. And that's the same thing as the millennium. And so they would say the thousand years there we read in Revelation 20 is not literal. It's just symbolic of a long period of time. And the kingdom is now. And uh, this, was the, this was the view that uh, was adopted by St. Augustine or Augustine in the 4th century. Up until that time, the church had believed in a literal thousand-year reign. We'll, we'll talk about th that in a moment. But this is the view of Roman Catholicism. This is the view of the vast majority of Protestantism. And uh, they believe that Christ, he's reigning right now, but he's ruling and reigning in our hearts. And he's ruling and reigning over the souls of the redeemed in heaven. So for amillennialists, the kingdom is not a literal, physical, earthly kingdom. It's a spiritual kingdom. And it's not future, it's now. So that's what they believe. Now if you'll put the second one up there, uh, post-millennials. Oh, by, the by the way, on the last one, the, the word A, or the letter A, in front of the word millennium, literally means no millennium, right? Amillennial. So that's, that's that view. Um, Post-millennialists, it's similar. They believe, too, that this current age is the, the millennial reign of Christ. The difference is, post-millennialists believe that things are going to continuously get better and the world is going to become Christianized. And so Jesus will come back, you see, post or the end of the millennium. In other words, the millennium will be established on earth through the preaching of the gospel. And then Jesus will come back post or at the end of it. Uh, one of my professors in seminary, Dr. Harold Honer, he used to say that post-millennialists believe that someday God the Father is going to look at Jesus and say, boy, Jesus, things down on earth are about as good as they are here in heaven. Now, why don't you go on down there uh, now at this point in time? I don't think that's ever going to happen, but uh, that's their view. Uh, the the post-millennial view came about in about 1700 A.D., a Unitarian minister named Daniel Whitby is the one who came up with this idea. So this church age, is a go there's a golden age that's going to arrive by degrees as the gospel is preached throughout the earth. Now, this was the, the, this was the major view of the millennium in the 18th and 19th centuries. Um, very dominant view. The problem is once World War I came, a lot of people began to kind of wonder if this view was right. After World War II, it kind of really started waning, and there are very few people today who are post-millennial. Um, th there aren't that many folks who, who look around this world today and see it getting better and better, but there are a few, a few stubborn holdouts to this view. Now, the final view, and the one that I hold, and I know the one that's taught here at this church, is called premillennialism. And what it teaches, you see, is we're in the church age here now. There's going to be a time of tribulation, after the church is raptured to heaven over here, there's going to, or right over here, the beginning of the tribulation, then Christ is going to come, you see, pre or before the millennium, and he's going to set it up. So the millennium won't come until the Messiah comes. He's going to come pre or before the millennium. And when he comes, the, the millennium is going to be established. So premillennialists believe the millennium is a literal earthly kingdom that's in the future. So here's the difference. Amillennialists and postmillennialists say it's a spiritual kingdom and it's now. Premillennialists say it's a literal, earthly, visible kingdom and it's future. So that's, that's the real difference here. The difference is on the nature of it and the timing of this kingdom. Now let me give uh, a few reasons why I hold this view. Number one is, and this is important, the premillennial view was the earliest view of the church. Uh, for the first 300 years of the church, this is what people believed. And they, again, as I mentioned earlier, they were called Kiliasts, people who believed in a literal thousand-year reign of Christ. By the way, a man named Papias, 
uh, that name may not mean anything to you, but Papias was a disciple of the Apostle John. And Papias believed in a literal thousand-year reign of Christ in the future. Now, that gives me a lot of comfort because obviously if Papias studied under the Apostle John who wrote Revelation chapter 20, Papias should have known what John meant by that. Um, you've also got Justin Martyr. You've got Irenaeus. I mean, all the great luminaries of the early church for 300 years believed this view. To me, that's important. Now, again, we don't get our view of the Bible from church history. But the fact that it was the, the view of the church for 300 years is a strong argument. The second reason I hold this view is it's the most natural reading to me. Because if you just read through the book of Revelation, you have in uh, chapter 19 the second coming of Jesus. Then in chapter 20, verses 1 to 6, you have this millennium. Then in 7 through 10, you have this rebellion. And 11, uh, 20, 11 to 15, you have the great white throne judgment. Then you have the new heaven and the new earth being formed. So it seemed to just be going in order. It seems that the millennium in chapter 20 follows the second coming of Jesus in chapter 19. So it just seems to me to be the most natural reading of the passage. A third reason I hold this view is because it says during this thousand-year reign of Christ, Satan's going to be bound. He's going to be bound in the abyss for a thousand years. Amillennialists and postmillennialists believe that that's today. They say that Satan is bound in the sense that he can't deceive the nations today. Well, I'd say the nations are pretty deceived today. It's a hard, uh, hard sell, I think. To me, this contradicts the way Satan's pictured in the New Testament. Uh, Satan's called the ruler of this world, the god of this world, an angel of light, the prince of the power of the air. He's called a, a, a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And one of my friends years ago said, you know, if, if Satan is uh, uh, bound today, he must be on an awful long leash. I mean, he's out doing all kinds of problems. He's like a roaring lion. It says he schemes against believers. Um, Thessalonians 2.18 says he hinders us. Revelation 12.10 says he accuses us. Uh, 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says he blinds the minds of those who don't believe. So to me, Satan is anything but bound today. And notice in the verse here, in verse 2, it says that Satan is bound, that he's laid hold of by the, dra the dragon. Uh, he's uh, laid hold of. They threw him in the abyss. They shut it and they sealed it over him so that he should no longer deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. The language there is very forceful and clear. And I don't think you can argue that anything like this happened at the first coming of Christ, which is when they say it happened, but it will happen, I think, at the second coming of Christ. And then just one final reason I'll give, and we'll move on. Uh, oh yeah, he's got put some of these up here. I won't cover all of these, but um, another reason is the literal thousand years. There is uh, six times in these seven, first seven verses of chapter 20, you read the words a thousand years, a thousand years, a thousand years. Six times it's repeated. It seems odd to me for that to be a spiritualized number when you repeat it over and over again like that. Also, most of the numbers, if, I mean, I would say, you know, 95% of the numbers in the book of Revelation are literal. You go back to chapter 1, and there were seven churches, you remember, that Jesus addressed. The number seven is literal. Um, you've got uh, the 12 tribes of Israel are mentioned. Um, you've got uh, 12 uh, apostles are mentioned. So a lot of the numbers, if not most of them, are literal. One other thing here, though, this is interesting. This gets a little detail, but I like this kind of stuff. It says in, uh, notice at the end of verse 3, it says, Satan's going to be bound for a thousand years, but after these things, he'll be released for a short time. Now, if thousand years just means a long time, why didn't he say he's going to be bound for a long time, and then at the end of it, he'll be released for a short time? See, the fact that he uses a nonspecific statement like a, a short time, to me, argues for the fact that when he says a thousand years, that a thousand years is literal there. Also, when you go down to verse 8, he says, when these armies gather at the end, they're going to gather together like the, the sand on the seashore. In other words, that's a nonspecific number, right? It's just a symbolic number, meaning a whole lot of people. But the fact that he uses phrases like the number of the sand on the seashore and a short time 
in the same context where he uses the very specific thousand years, to me argues for the fact that the thousand years is literal. So there's other reasons, but those are the main reasons why I believe there's going to be a literal future thousand-year reign of Christ. Now, I, uh, I heard about a man one time who was so strongly premillennial and so opposed to amillennialism that when he went to the doctor and the doctor said to open your mouth and say, ah, he said pre. Um, <laughs> amillennial, get it, premillennial. Well, I'm not quite that bad, but I do believe that the millennial reign of Christ is a literal 1,000-year reign on the earth that's going to be after his second coming. I think that's what the Bible teaches. Now, with that in mind, let's move on to the next question, his third question. What is the millennium going to be like? What's it going to be like? The millennium will be inhabited by people who will be living in their human unglorified bodies and at the same time by people in their glorified bodies. So during the millennium, there are going to be people living here in natural unglorified bodies like we all have right now. At the same time, there are going to be people there living in their glorified bodies. So there's going to be a mixture of these two. Now let me explain this. You have to hang with me here, and, and uh, during the Q&A, if this wasn't clear, I can, I'll be, go back, be glad to go back through it again. But whenever the rapture takes place, remember we talked about that last night, one of these days the rapture is going to take place. Those who've died during this church age, they're going to be resurrected, their bodies will be, and rejoined with their perfected spirits. So they'll be glorified at that time. They'll have a glorified body and a perfected spirit, not subject to corruption anymore. Those of us who are alive when the rapture takes place, we're going to be caught up to be with the Lord immediately, transform body, soul, and spirit. We'll get that immortal, incorruptible, imperishable body. So we'll have these glorified bodies. Then when Christ returns to earth at his second coming, we'll come back with him. And at that point in time, that's when I believe the bodies of Old Testament saints are going to be raised. So the Old Testament saints are going to have their bodies raised at that time to be joined with their spirits. I don't think Old Testament saints will be raised at the rapture because remember in Thessalonians 4, it says the dead in Christ will rise. Old Testament saints are believers. They know the Lord, but they're not in Christ through the baptizing work of the Holy Spirit. So I take it the rapture is just church age believers. But at the second coming, when Jesus is coming back, these Old Testament saints who've died and the believers who died during the tribulation period, their bodies are going to be resurrected, I believe, and rejoined with their uh, perfected spirits as well because it talks about that, in fact, here in chapter 20, verse 4. I saw thrones and they who sat upon them and judgment was given to them and I saw the souls of those who'd been beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus and the word of God. And he says, uh, they came to life and they reigned with Christ a thousand years. So all the Old Testament saints, all of the church age believers... And all of the tribulation saints will all have been, those who've died will all be resurrected and they'll all have their new bodies and will be living on the earth at that point in time. Hopefully we're clear that far. Now, there's going to be people living on the earth during the tribulation period, living in their, in their natural bodies. And many of those people are going to survive till the very end of the tribulation when Jesus comes back to the earth. And so when he comes back to the earth, in Matthew 25, verse 31, to me it's one of the most powerful verses in all the Bible. You think about the setting for Matthew 25. Jesus is there two days before he dies on the cross. He's there with uh, you know, his, his 12 disciples. They're actually on, on the, the Mount of Olives up there. He's just got four of them. Peter, James, John, and, or, or, uh, Peter, James, and John, and Andrew are there with him. But Jesus is there and he makes this statement. He goes, he says this, he goes, the Son of Man is going to come with all the holy angels with him. And he's going to sit on his glorious throne. And he's going to gather all the nations before him. And he's going to separate them as a shepherd separating the sheep from the goats. He's going to put the sheep on the right and the goats on the left. Now, just pause for a moment though and think of the audacity to make a statement like that. 
Think of those disciples. They're sitting there looking at Jesus. He's going to be killed in two days. Everybody's going to turn against him. Yet he's sitting there and he says, one of these days, the Son of Man's going to come. And all the angels are going to come with him. And he's going to sit on his glorious throne. And all the nations are going to be gathered before him. And he's going to separate them like a shepherd separating sheep from goats. Now, when someone makes that statement, you've got to sit there and look into their eyes and think either we've got to take this guy off and get a straight jacket for him somewhere, or this person really is who he says he is. And he's really going to come do this someday. So when Christ comes, there's going to be people on the earth. And when you read Matthew 25, 31 to 46, the judgment of the nations, those who are believers there and who've shown that through their, uh, through their works, they're going to go into the millennial kingdom. They're going to go into the kingdom. Those who have been disobedient and rejected Christ, they're going to go uh, be cast into hell. So there's going to be nations gathered, the Gentiles. The Jews who lived through the tribulation are also going to be judged. Some of them are going to be believers, the vast majority, I think, and some won't be. Those who are believers then will go in the kingdom. So what you're going to have is a lot of people in glorified bodies, all the Old Testament saints, the church age saints, the tribulation saints, but then you got these people that live through the tribulation who are going to be, who are believers, who are going to be admitted into the messianic kingdom in their natural bodies. And so when they get into the kingdom, they're going to live in that kingdom and they're going to live here on the earth and they're going to be married and have children and carry on normal life. While those of us who are in glorified bodies, according to the scripture, are going to rule and reign over them during that time in positions of authority. So only believers are going to enter that kingdom. And paradise is going to be restored to this earth. Uh, Christ is going to be visibly present on the earth, ruling and reigning from Jerusalem. Remember Isaac Watts wrote that great song we sing at Christmas, Joy to the World. Did you know, though, he didn't write that as a Christmas song? That is actually a song that was penned to announce the second coming of Christ to rule and reign on the earth. It's a song about the millennium. It's based on uh, Psalm 95. Think of some of the words to that. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. And he says, no more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. And it says, he rules the world in truth and grace. Didn't happen at the first coming of Christ. But it's going to happen at his second coming. It's a song of the millennium when full joy is going to come to the world. Now, there are a lot of things that we could say tonight to describe what the millennium is going to be like. But there are two overarching characteristics that I want to mention about what the millennium is going to be like. And these two main characteristics are there's going to be peace and there's going to be prosperity. Now, if you're running today uh, for president of the United States, what are the two things that people want more than anything else? They want peace. They want you to be good on, in, in, uh, your, your, in, in the foreign relations and all of that and, and getting along with other countries and keeping the terrorists out of here and giving us peace so we don't get killed and all of that. And the other thing you want is prosperity. It's the old thing. It's the economy, stupid, right? I mean, that's what people care about. And they're saying, you know, the election coming up, what's it all going to be about? They say, it's all going to be about the economy because that's what people care about most. And while there are a lot of other things we could say about the millennial kingdom, it's going to be a time of peace and it's going to be a time of prosperity. Look back in uh, Isaiah chapter 2. I know we read Isaiah uh, 11 uh, earlier tonight, but in Isaiah chapter 2, great, uh, great passage there. Isaiah chapter 2 and uh, verse 4. This is a passage about the millennium. Notice again uh, how much there is in the Old Testament. It says the words in, in verse 1, the words which Isaiah, the son of Amaz, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Now it will come about that in the last days, it's looking to the messianic kingdom, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains. It will be raised above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come up and say, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways, that we may walk in his paths for the law will go from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. 
And He will judge between the nations and will render decisions for many peoples. And they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation and never again will they learn war. By the way, there's a sculpture outside the UN building that says, let us beat our swords into plowshares. It's interesting, that was a gift uh, from uh, the Soviet Union or from Russia, uh, who uh, obviously didn't believe that or follow that, but I thought that was interesting. And over in chapter 9, in Isaiah chapter 9, Notice it says, For thou shalt break the yoke of their burden and the staff of their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor as at the battle of Midian, and every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult, and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning fuel for the fire. Now listen to these great words. For a child will be born to us, that is to Israel. A son will be given to us. The government will rest upon his shoulders. It's talking about him reigning a kingdom. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of His government or of peace on the throne of David and over His kingdom to establish it, to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. Notice the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. There's only going to be peace on this earth when the Prince of Peace comes, when the Messiah comes. And I like to call this here the Pax Messiah. Remember the, remember the Pax Romana, the Roman peace you know, that took place when the Roman Empire ruled? I call this the Pax Messiah. This is the messianic peace uh, that will come to the earth. The second key mark of the millennium is prosperity. Look over in Isaiah 35. Isaiah chapter 35. Isaiah is filled with great passages about the millennium. Look at Isaiah 35. The wilderness and the desert will be glad, and the Arabah, which is the desert in, in Israel, will rejoice and blossom like the crocus, will blossom profusely and rejoice with rejoicing and shout of joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Encourage the exhausted, strengthen the feeble. Say to those with anxious heart, take courage, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. The recompense of God will come, but he will save you. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened. The ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Remember, that's what Jesus came and did at his first coming. So he was doing the signs of the kingdom, the signs of the Messiah, and they rejected him. The lame will leap like the deer. The tongue of the dumb will shout for joy, for waters will break forth in the wilderness and streams in the Arabah. The scorched land will become a pool. The thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals, its resting place, grass becomes reeds and rushes. And on, on and on you can continue to read there. But what are politicians constantly trying to do? They're constantly working on plans to provide more prosperity and better health care for their citizens, right? In the Lord's government and the messianic kingdom, the health plan will literally be out of this world. Notice what it says here. The blind will be opened, the eyes. The deaf will be unstopped. The lame will leap like the deer. In other words, the king, Jesus, the Messiah, is not only going to be the ruler, but he's going to be the healer of his people. All of their diseases and all the deformities of the people. And as a result of this universal health care system, People will live expanded lifespans, I believe, like back before the flood. So I think if someone is righteous and they follow the Lord and obey Him, if they go into the millennium, they're going to live all the way to the end of it. They'll live the whole thousand years. It's about how long people lived before the flood. Because in Isaiah 65 verse 20, it says a person who dies at the age of 100 will be considered to be, have been like a child. In other words, they will have died prematurely. Now you say, well, why will people die during the Messianic kingdom? The reason people will die, I think, is if they outwardly rebel against the rule of Christ. And there will be some who do that. Now, we're going to see later, there's going to be a lot of people who aren't going to submit to him in their heart. But they're going to go ahead and go along with everything outwardly because if there's any outward rebellion, remember it says many times in Scripture, Jesus is going to rule the nations with a rod of iron. He'd be a benevolent ruler, but he's not going to put up with any protests or marches or anything like that against his power and authority. 
I like the way uh, Chuck Swindoll uh, says it here. He says this very well. He says, the book of Revelation promises a golden age in which all the weapons of warfare will be fashioned into implements of peace. Prosperity will be shared. Peace will become the banner of all people. The light of justice will illumine every corner of the world. This condition will not be achieved through educational funding, political change, social programs, cultural awakening, or even religious revival. True global transformation will occur only when Satan and his minions are ousted, allowing Jesus Christ and his glorified saints to rule over the earth. That's a great summary of the millennium. Remember when I was at Dallas Seminary, uh, uh, the president of the seminary when I was there was a man named Don Campbell. And uh, Dr. Campbell years ago had taught at the seminary. And Dallas Seminary is a big-time premillennial school. I mean, you know, they, that's, that's the view of the school. And one time in one of his classes, Dr. Campbell walked in at the beginning of class, and he, he tossed his Bible down there on the podium, you know, to begin teaching. He said, well, he said, well, men, that was back when only men were at the school. He said, well, men, he said, uh, this weekend, he said, I was reading the Bible, and I became an amillennialist. Well, I mean, everybody in the class said, what in the world? You know, the guy lost his mind or what? And he said, no, no, wait a minute, before you get all upset. He goes, I was reading in the Bible, and he said, I was reading in the book of Isaiah. I was reading about the, the wolf and the lamb lying down together and the child playing by the hole of the cobra and, and all the prosperity that's going to be there. And he said, I read all of those passages and I'd been watching the news on television and seeing all the bad news in the world. And he said, I leaned back in my chair and said, ah, millennium. <laughs> so I like that. I, I, when it comes to the millennium, I'm an ah, millennialist, if you want to take it that way. We say, ah, millennium. It's going to come uh, one of these days. There's a great story I read uh, a while back. Uh, some, some of you may be familiar with Steve Brown. He's a Bible teacher. He's on the radio some at uh, different places. But he tells a great story about the ugliest car that he'd ever seen. He said he saw this horribly ugly car, had a large gash in the side. Uh, one of the doors was held together with bailing wire. Uh, there were parts missing. The muffler was loose. You know, it sent sparks in every direction when it drove. I mean, you couldn't tell the original color of it. I mean, it was just a, the worst, most dilapidated car you could ever imagine. But the owner, when he would park it out in front of his apartment at night, would put a sign in the back window that says, this is not an abandoned car. Because he was afraid they were going to come haul it off, you know, think somebody just abandoned it there. But I thought about that, you know, everywhere we look today in this world, we watch the news at night, we see an ugly scene out there, don't we? I mean, it's held together by bailing wire. You can't tell the original color that it was. I mean, this world we live in is in trouble. But I believe that the premillennial view that we hold teaches us this is not an abandoned world. And I think that's one of the great truths of premillennialism. It tells us, look, one of these days, this world we live in, Christ is going to come back. And paradise is going to be restored. And the kingdom of this world is going to become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ. And He's going to reign forever. To me, the millennium and the promise of the millennium teaches us that this is not an abandoned world. God uh, still has a purpose for it. Now, the final question I want to answer is, why is there going to be a millennium? Why do we need a millennium? There are four purposes for the messianic kingdom in the Bible. I'm going to just mention these quickly. The first one is to recognize the promises of God, to recognize God's promises. You remember back in uh, Genesis chapter 15, God made a covenant with Abraham. And God promised Abraham that he was going to give his descendants the land of Israel. He was going to give it to them forever. And you remember God made a blood covenant with Abraham. Remember in a blood covenant, you'd cut animals in half and you'd throw half the carcass over there and half over there and you'd walk between them. And the parties would walk between these dead animals. And by doing that, they were pledging their own life. They were saying, look, if I don't keep my end of the bargain, then may I be like these animals. In other words, I'll give my own blood. And you remember that Abraham fell asleep and he woke up and he saw a smoking oven and a flaming torch going between those pieces. It was, a, it was a theophany. It was God himself. And Abraham never walked between the pieces. He never made any promises at all. It was all promises by God. And God told Abraham, said, Abraham, to your descendants, the descendants of Isaac and to Jacob, I'm going to give this land forever. And he gives the dimensions of it. And it goes 100 miles north of the modern-day Syrian city of Damascus. 
It goes 100 miles south of Jerusalem. It includes parts of modern-day Lebanon, parts of modern-day Syria, even parts of modern-day Iraq. And the Jews have never possessed all of that land. But I believe during the Messianic kingdom, when Jesus Christ is sitting on David's throne there in Jerusalem, ruling over the world, he's going to give the Jewish people that land that he promised to them. And if he doesn't give it to them, then he didn't keep his word. And if he doesn't keep his word to them, then what does that mean for us? He may not keep his word to us either. He's going he's to recognize the promises of God. The millennium is going to be God bringing these promises to fruition. A second reason for the millennium is to redeem creation. To redeem creation. One important function of the millennium is to reverse God's curse on creation. To reverse God's curse on creation. The wolf and the lamb will lie down together in harmony. And a child will be able to play next to the hole of a poisonous snake. It's the, uh, the passage uh, that Pastor Ross just read a little bit ago. I read a story years ago about P.T. Barnum. He was the famous uh, circus showman. Most of you know who he is, you know, Barnum and Bailey Circus. And he loved to show visiting preachers an exhibit he had called the Happy Family. And inside of it, he had lions, tigers, and panthers squatted around a lamb without any aggression whatsoever. And when Barnum was sometimes asked by the visiting preachers, um, if the group ever had any trouble, he would say this, apart from replenishing the lamb now and then, they get along very well. <laughs> We're not in the millennium now, are we? Somebody once uh, made this great statement. I like this. They said, if you think we're in the millennium today, put a wolf in a pen with a lamb and see what happens. Now, you know, people that are amillennial, they spiritualize that passage and don't take it literally, but I think it's literally going to happen. We're not in the millennium now. This world is not what it's supposed to be. It's not what it was created to be. It's not what God made it to be, but the Bible declares that someday it will be. Someday this world will be what God created it to be. Now, think about this with me just for a moment. If there's no literal millennium in the future, if there's no literal thousand-year reign, if the amillennialists are right and the postmillennialists, and this is the kingdom now, there's not going to be a literal reign of Christ on the earth, it, I believe that God's purposes for this world will never really be fulfilled. You know, God made Adam and Eve and he put them in the garden. He said, rule and reign and take dominion over creation. And they failed. You know, the first Adam failed miserably. And to me, apart from the reign of Christ on this earth, God's purpose for this earth will never be fully realized. One of the reasons I think there needs to be a literal millennial reign is so that the second Adam, the Lord Jesus, the last Adam, can come and fulfill what the first Adam didn't do. He's going to do what he didn't do. He's going to take dominion and rule over this earth. So the millennium will bring all of creation full circle as God brings to pass with the second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, what the first Adam failed to do. Now see, that is a very important function for this millennium. A third reason for the millennium is to reward the faithful. To reward the faithful. What I would say about this current age we live in now, I call this training time for reigning time. We're training now and living our lives now for the positions of authority and responsibility that we're going to have in the future someday. The life you're living now will determine the positions of authority and responsibility that you're going to have in the millennial kingdom and on into eternity. That's a very sobering thing to think about. You know, a lot of people think, well, I'm saved, you know, I'm going to heaven, and you know, I don't care anything more than that. But what God tells us, we're to, we're to, we're to seek rewards. We're, we're to work for the rewards that we can get. And you remember in Luke 19, it's a picture there of a nobleman, and he's going away on a long trip. It, it's a picture of Jesus. And he has uh, the men who are there, and, and he gives each one of them uh, a 10 minus or 10 pounds. And he tells them, go out and do business with this until I come back. And he gives them these responsibilities. And when he returns again, they're held accountable for what they did. And you remember the, the man who, who had the 10 minus and went out and got 10 more? He says, you've been faithful with this. And so he says, you're going to rule over 10 cities. And to the second man, he says to him, you're going to rule over five cities. And I think that's picturing the millennial reign. 
when Christ is going to be ruling, we're going to have positions of authority. Now, I've often wondered about myself, you know, if I'm going to be the you know, dog catcher or who knows what in the kingdom of God. But you know, we'll, we'll, we'll have some measure of responsibility uh, when we're there. Some people are going to rule over ten cities. Some are going to rule over five cities. And often I'll hear people say, well, again, I don't really care, you know, about that. I don't care about uh, working for rewards. But God tells us to do it. Remember Paul in Philippians chapter 3, he says, you know, I press on. You know, I've not already attained it yet, but I press on toward the mark for the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul was pressing on for rewards. You remember Paul said, in fact, the last chapter that he wrote in uh, 2 uh, Timothy chapter 4, he says, there's laid up for me in the future the crown of righteousness. And not only for me, but for all those who've loved his appearing. So these rewards are something uh, that we are as God's people to seek. And how we live now is going to affect what we do for all of eternity. And so God is, is watching us as we carry out the functions he's given. And you remember the key quality is faithfulness. Remember the Savior himself said, you know, well done thou good and faithful servant. It's the faithfulness with what God's given to us. So one of the purposes of the millennium is going to be to reward the faithful. Another thing it says too, remember in 1 Corinthians 6, 3, it says we're going to judge the angels. Now I don't, I don't know what that means exactly, but somehow we're going to have administrative authority over the angelic host as well. And so the way we live now is going to determine that. The fourth reason for the millennium, now this gets really interesting here. This is where uh, the plot thickens here at this point. The, the final purpose of the millennium, main purpose, is to, uh, to prove the depravity of man. To prove the depravity of man. Look down in Revelation 20, 7 through 10. Now it says this, When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison, and he'll come out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog to gather them together for the war, the number of them is like the sand on the seashore. And they'll come up on the broad plain of the earth and surround the camp of the saints in the beloved city. And fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Again, the idea, you know, that some have today that you know, nobody's going to end up in hell, and the hell's not eternal. This would certainly be a verse to use against that. But this is a fascinating passage. I call this the second coming of Satan. Satan's going to get cast into the abyss, but he's going to make a comeback. At the end of the thousand years, Satan is going to be released for a short period of time. Now that raises a really good question. Why is God going to release Satan from the abyss? Uh, Dr. Lewis Sperry Chafer, who founded Dallas Seminary, the seminary I attended, one time someone asked him, why is God going to lose Satan after he had him bound for a thousand years? Here's what Dr. Chafer said. If you'll tell me why God let him loose in the first place, I'll tell you why God will let him loose the second time. That's a good answer, isn't it? We don't know. You know, why did God allow Satan to be, uh, to be let loose the first time? But notice here, when Satan is let loose, he gathers a host of rebels who are going to jump at the chance to, to rebel against Christ. Now, again, remember this. During the Messianic age, everybody who enters the kingdom in their human bodies is going to be a believer in Jesus Christ. But they're going to have offspring during this thousand-year period. And evidently, and all of them will be born with a sinful nature, just like people are today, but they're going to have a perfect world around them. Satan and all the demons are going to be in the abyss. But without them around to tempt them or to try them or tempt them to sin, when Satan is let loose after this thousand years, with the Lord Jesus having been personally ruling and reigning on the earth, Satan's going to be able to gather a number of people who is like the sand on the seashore to rebel against Christ. 
Now, the Bible teaches that in spite of all those perfect conditions, a host of people are going to be born and raised who will not accept Christ in their heart. Now, again, they will have kind of outwardly conformed during that time because any outward rebellion will be put down. And everybody who enters the kingdom will know the Lord, but these children who are born, many of them won't repent and believe in Christ. Now, that seems unbelievable to me, but it's true. When Satan then is released for this brief time at the end of the millennium, after a thousand-year prison sentence, Satan will not have reformed his character one bit. He won't have changed at all. And here's another thing to remember. After Satan being in the abyss for a thousand years, his character won't have changed a bit. And after Christ ruling and reigning on the earth in the midst of human beings, people won't have changed a bit either. In other words, human character... Uh, human nature will not uh, have changed. But the second coming of Satan, as I call it here, will prove that Satan is still Satan and that man is still man, even after a thousand years of messianic peace on the earth. So the Bible tells us again, Satan will gather this group like the number of the sand on the seashore. And this last human confederacy, they're going to come. And notice it says, they come up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. What city is that? It's Jerusalem, where Christ is reigning there, sitting on David's throne. By the way, up in verse 8, it's called Gog and Magog. Now remember last night we looked at Gog and Magog in Ezekiel? And we said there that in Ezekiel, the Gog and Magog there is going to happen during the tribulation. Well, this is over a thousand years later, and this is called Gog and Magog. What I think this is, is this is kind of like Gog and Magog too, if you will. It's kind of like you, know, you had World War I and World War II. He's, he's just saying, look, this is going to be another Gog and Magog. All these nations gathered against the, 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 the people of God. And by the way, I think this is an, it could be an interesting point. They're coming here against the city of Jerusalem and the camp of the saints, it may be Satan's last anti-Semitic attempt to wipe out the Jewish people. Ever thought about that? It could be. That's what it, one of the things that's being, being stated here. But the point of this is, is this is going to prove once and for all, beyond any doubt, that regardless of man's heredity, his character, or the environment, man is incorrigibly evil apart from the saving grace of God. Because you think about it, in the Garden of Eden, people didn't have, Adam and Eve didn't have a sin nature, but Satan was there to tempt them. Now, after they fell throughout all of history, we've had a sin nature and Satan and demons to tempt us. When you get to the millennium, the people living there in their human bodies are going to have a, still have a sin nature, but Satan and the demons won't be there to tempt them. And they're still going to fall. What it shows is whatever... Uh, whatever uh, conditions God places man under, man ultimately as man will fail. Uh, Henry Morris said this, one of the most amazing commentaries on the fallen human nature to be found in all the word of God is right here in this passage. After 1,000 years of a perfect environment with an abundance of material possessions and spiritual instruction for everyone, no crime, no war, no external temptation to sin, with the personal presence of all the resurrected saints and even Christ himself, and with Satan and his demons bound in the abyss, there is still a multitude of unsaved men and women on earth who are ready to rebel against the Lord the first time they get a chance. That's a sobering, sobering commentary on human nature. And when I say human nature, I mean your nature and my nature. I mean, uh, human nature, you know, out there. Well, it's us. That's who we're talking about. So the millennium and the second coming of Satan is proof positive that the heart of man is black with sin and that the, the death of Christ was absolutely necessary for man's salvation. If there's ever been any doubt in all the Bible up to this point that it was necessary for Jesus to die for us and that people deserve eternal punishment, this passage here I think lays that all to rest. It lays it to rest. Look, we can only be saved by the grace of God. The death of Christ was absolutely necessary. And people deserve eternal punishment. It tells us that we have to have a Savior. So the thousand-year reign of Christ provides climactic evidence 
that we have to have a righteousness outside of ourselves in order to please God and to have a relationship with him. And of course, that's what we talked about last night. I can assure you, you do not want to stand before God someday clothed in the filthy rags of your own righteousness. I mean, the Bible says that the best that we can do, the best that we can do in and of ourselves are just filthy rags. We have to have the righteousness of Christ. It's that the song we sang in there a few moments ago. Oh, when he comes with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found dressed in his righteousness alone faultless to stand before the throne. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. That's the truth of the gospel. And the only way we're going to make it to heaven and to the millennium and to the glories of Christ is if we have our hope and, and our trust in Him. Let me just go ahead and mention a couple of other things here and we'll take the questions. But some of you may be wondering, well, what's going to happen after the millennium? Well, after the millennium in verses 11 to 15 there in Revelation, the next event is the great white throne judgment. That's where all the lost are going to be brought there to be judged by God. And I won't go into that in detail. It's a very sobering text. But in uh, chapter 21, then he says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth passed away and there's no longer any sea. And he goes on down and uh, later on in the passage, and yeah, in verse 2, it says, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. And so at the end of the millennium, see, during the millennium, while the earth, while, while people are living here on the earth and we're in glorified bodies, some believe that the heavenly city, the new Jerusalem, that 1,500 mile cube, that city where God lives, that's uh, like a floating continent, that it may be suspended somewhere up above the earth. Because obviously we will be living in that city, but we're going to be reigning with Christ on earth. So we may be commuting, you know, back and forth. I, I don't know how that will work, but we can live in the heavenly city. But we can also serve Christ on the earth. But at the end of the millennium, he says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth passed away. Now, some believe that at the end of the millennium, this earth is just going to be completely renovated and then we'll go into uh, eternity. But I think God is going to take apart this present universe and make it all new again. And then that heavenly city, the new Jerusalem, is going to come down and sit on this new earth as like the capital city for it. So it's the capital city, I think, of, uh, of eternity. Uh, there's a passage back in the 102nd Psalm that talks about this world we live in, and it says that God has created all these things, but it says one of these days He's going to roll it all up like a garment, and He's just going to cast it aside. It's like you just take an old coat or an old shirt that's worn out and you just throw it away. God's going to take the universe. You know, the universe is about um, 26 billion light years across. And uh, this universe we live in, and they're saying now that there may be, you know, millions and billions of these universes. We don't even know. But that's, you know, it's, it's, it's 26 billion light years across, and that's light traveling in 186,000 miles a second. And so that's how vast it all is, and it's constantly expanding at the speed of light. And my question always is, you know, what's out there on the other side of it? It's expanding into, I mean, this is, you know, it's mind-boggling. But it says God, it just says here simply, the first heaven and the first earth passed away. The Bible starts with those great words, in the beginning, God. And you could write at the end of the Bible, in the end, God. Because the same God who made it all is going to take it all apart. He's going to make it new. And then that heavenly city is going to come down and it's going to sit on the new earth. It's going to be the capital city. And at that point in time, we're going to be able to come and go from that city. And we're going to be able to travel. And you know, who knows what God's going to create for us um, at that time. But that's when we'll enter into the eternal state. One final thing, and then we'll take some questions. I'm sure that's provoked some questions. But one other statement, one other thing I love here. Have you ever thought about the heavenly city, the new Jerusalem? I don't think I mentioned this last night. Um, but in the heavenly city, that new Jerusalem where God dwells, where his throne is, there's 12 gates there. And what's written on the 12 gates into the new Jerusalem? Anybody know? The names of the 12 tribes of Israel. It's interesting, isn't it? 
And I, I'd never thought about that. I was reading a book uh, on Genesis by Bruce Waltke several year, a year or so ago. And I've always read that, you know, the 12 tribes of Israel, their names are on those 12 gates. Go back and think about what those men were like. I mean, think about Reuben. You know, he had relations with his father's concubines. You know, think about Judah they, they, and the Issachar and, and these other brothers. They, they sent their brother Joseph into slavery. They sold him for, for some money and they sent him there. And they let their poor father believe for decades their brother was dead. And watched it just tear his heart out. I mean, read, read Genesis 38. I mean, it's the most sordid chapter in the Bible. It's about Judah, the man who ultimately became the one that the Messiah would come through, the tribe of Judah. And you read about the children of Israel in the Old Testament. I mean, all the apostasy and the falling away and the disobedience. And when you read that statement, the written on the gates of the, uh, written on the 12 gates into the New Jerusalem are the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. Those men were, were scoundrels. And, but God redeemed those men by His grace. And I tell you, that's a comfort to me to know that because you walk into that heavenly city someday. I don't know what gate you'll walk in. We'll, we'll go in different gates. We're going to see the name of a man written there, one of the 12 tribes of Israel who were sinners. And to me, it's a great comfort. It means that God, no matter how sinful we are, that anyone who puts faith in the Lamb of God can enter into that heavenly city by God's redeeming grace. So when you fall into sin in your life, as we all inevitably do, and there's failure in your life, and you wonder, you know, how could God ever let me into heaven? Well, remember those names on those gates. And again, I'm not saying that as an excuse for us to go out and sin, but it's an encouragement to us that God can save us no matter what we've done if we'll come uh, through the Lord Jesus. So that's, uh, that's where I'll, I'll stop tonight. Thank you all so much. It's been great being with you. God bless you.